0: that pertains to Psalm 32 today or anything at all about the book of Psalms or or this sermon, you can email SQ for sermon questions, SQ at HiawathaChurch.com. Anytime between now and the end of the sermon, and we'll field a few of the questions, uh, time permitting, uh, before uh, we wrap things up. So, um, but again, hopefully you've enjoyed the series and gotten something out of it. We really love the Psalms here, and we preach through the Psalms regularly. Uh, not all at once, uh, the 150 of them, but we like to take, uh, you know, five to ten at a time or something like that, even just one sometimes uh, for an open mic type sermon. Uh, We have other psalms then that we've preached in the past that you uh, can listen to if you want on our SoundCloud account, our website, our podcast. We uh, direct you there if you would like to uh, keep learning and and keep seeing Jesus in, uh, again, what we call is his his songbook in the Old Testament. So, So remember that idea, though. That's kind of been our guiding interpretational principle for this book, is that the Psalms are the songbook of Jesus Christ. And we must read them in the way the New Testament does. That's a guiding principle for any place we're reading in the Bible, any genre, any corner of the Scriptures. But with the Psalms in particular, we must remember those two things, that they are the words of Christ ultimately, and we must read them in the way that the New Testament does. The Psalms is an Old Testament book. It comes before Christ, chronologically, so we must look at the way that the New Testament spiritualizes these psalms and sees Jesus being the ultimate meaning behind them. And so to borrow some language from John the Baptist in the New Testament, I think I did this a couple weeks ago as well, but to borrow some language from John the Baptist, even though Jesus came after the psalmists chronologically, he ranks before them because he is God. And so all of the words ultimately belong to him. And so if it helps, think about it this way too. Rank is more important than chronology when it comes to understanding authorship and meaning in the Bible. And Jesus ranks highest as a son of God. So he is the author and he is the meaning behind the whole Bible, including the Psalms. All right, so with that in mind, and if that's new to you, I'll I'll apply that today so you can kind of see it in practice. But I encourage you to, to do that yourselves when you read the Psalms on your own or with your families or friends or community groups. Let's read Psalm 32 to begin here in full, uh, verses 1 to 11, and then we will um, come back and, and dive through it. All right, starting in verse 0, actually, which is a descriptor of the psalm. Psalm 32, a maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All right, so the big question for today, nothing fancy here, but the big question is what does Psalm 32 mean? And want to walk through three key themes in this psalm that teach us about the gospel, starting with the first couple of verses. So this will be on screen if you're on Facebook, uh, but if you're not, the first couple of verses, let's focus on those here to begin. And this idea between the relationship between being forgiven and the feeling of relief. The relationship between being forgiven of our sins and the, the, the great feeling of relief that comes from that idea and reality for those who believe in Jesus Christ. All right, so very importantly to begin, the New Testament actually quotes these first two verses in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. So I want to read that to begin and kind of help that to frame, frame the issue here. So it says, Romans 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due." And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." All right, so these words, uh, Romans 4 for sure, but going back to Psalm 32, the first two verses, I think these are some of the best words in the entire Bible. Blessed, or that means saved, or close to God, or happy in this idea, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And I think some of the best words in the Bible here, because of how much this exemplifies grace. and how freeing this is. And it's no coincidence that the New Testament quotes this verbatim. Not all the Psalms get that, that much ink or FaceTime, figuratively speaking, in the New Testament. And so this is a big one. Paul remembers this. He looks to it. He writes it into his New Testament letter to the church in Rome to encourage them in the gospel. All right. But as we keep reading in Psalm 32, David adds later that when he was silent before God... In other words, when he held his sin in and didn't confess it to God, things were not good. But that when he gave it to God, he kind of almost plucked it out of himself and gave it to God and confessed it, he was forgiven. When he confessed his sins and iniquities, he was covered and forgiven. And it's implied here then, the way the psalm kind of progresses, even early on, It's implied that there was a likeness to David after he did this. There was a freedom and a relief that came with it. And so confessing our sin to God, giving it to him, confessing how we've missed the mark, how we're biased towards selfishness, we're biased towards evil. So giving that to God, giving our our inability, owning up to our inability to save ourselves, confessing everything to him and then knowing that we're truly forgiven brings relief it brings relief to the soul relief to the mind relief to the body and the heart all right but then going back to Romans 4 it's interesting because when Paul writes about this when he quotes Psalm 32 in his letter to Rome to the Roman church He theologizes about it. He actually adds something to it. He looks in the white space in Psalm 32 and makes that more explicit in his letter. He basically says, and and for him, I'll say it this way, for him, the presence of the theme of forgiveness is just as important as the absence of the mention of works. Okay, let me say that one more time. For Paul, the presence of the theme of forgiveness, like in Psalm 32, but also just in his theology, is just as important as the absence of works, or the absence of the mention of works. So his point is, blessed are those who are considered or counted perfect or clean or righteous by God or forgiven apart from works, apart from their good works, apart from their good deeds, Blessed are those people. So it's, it's not saying, Paul's not saying to the, the church in Rome, blessed are those who are paid, or blessed are those who are rewarded, or blessed are those who are recognized for their contributions. They're not blessed. Nor is he saying blessed are those who are not in a pandemic, or blessed are those who are healthy, but instead Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven apart from work. That's an important qualifier to this. The Bible makes crystal clear that we have to add into here to Psalm 32 if we are allowing the New Testament to interpret the Old, which we must because the Bible itself does that uh, in countless places. So to put it another way, being loved apart from work is better than being paid for our work. Being loved apart from work is being better than being paid for our work. And that's just kind of common sense, right? In fact, those two things by definition are separate. Paychecks aren't love. They might be good in some ways, but because they're compensating, they're not love. Love is given in spite of work, right? Like think about weddings. Like what wedding looks like a bride and a groom facing towards another, getting ready to to make their vows, and, and looks like the groom saying, I will let you marry me today because you've been good. Right? Like, that's gross. That, that never happens. That's like the, the, the antithesis of romance and love. And so love is actually given in spite of work. It's the same with the gospel. The Bible, throughout the whole story, moves us from works to grace, from ourselves Away from ourselves to God alone. And blessing comes with it. Salvation comes with it. Closeness to God and happiness comes with it. And a relief. The biggest of sighs of relief that no sin is too big. Relief that we can stop worrying if we've worked enough or not. That's the problem with a paycheck view of religion and Christianity is we we're going to worry. We're not going to have relief because how can you ever possibly know if you've worked enough? I love how David says too in the psalm, I did not cover my sin in verse 5. Look at verse 5 for a second if you have an open Bible. I did not cover my sin. So that is to say, we can't cover our sin, right? There's relief when we stop trying to cover it or to work to pay it off. But 1 Peter 4, in the, says in the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. God's love through the person and work of Jesus Christ is the thing that will actually cover a multitude of sins. I can't cover my sins. David can't cover his sins. You can't cover your sins, but love can, God's love can, through Jesus's shed blood. Not work, love. The Bible never says works cover a multitude of sins, but it does say that God does, and it does say that his love does. So I think that off, off the cuff here, Psalm 32, mixed with Romans 4, 4 to 8, is an invitation for all of us. It's an invitation to practice the confession of sin which is to say to God with your audible words and your actions and prayer, I can't cover my sin. I can't digest this. I can't absolve it inside my body and it won't go away just because I'm waiting or just because I'm doing enough good on the other side of it. So confession says I need to get it outside of me, outside my body. I need to give it to God, to his hands, to crush it in his son's nail-pierced pier- nail hands and side. That's, that's the solution. And so it's an invitation to confess sin, to repent, to turn towards Jesus, and to believe in him, to believe that Jesus loves, loves us, he bled for us, and his blood is the sign of the covenant, the new covenant, the New Testament. His blood is the sign of God's forgiveness for those who trust him, that Jesus came into the world to cover our sins. All right? The, the second theme that builds off of this I want to point you to is in verse 7. Verse 7 says, you are a hiding place for me. God, you are a hiding place for me. And in the grand scheme of things, some of you may be thinking this even right now as I say this, and some of you um, are new to the Bible, and so this is great because you'll, you'll see this. But in the grand scheme of things, this, is, this statement in verse 7 is a shocking statement. It should be shocking to us, especially in light of how the Bible begins. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve as representatives of humanity, sinning against God, rebelling against him, and then hiding from him behind some trees in the garden. This is from Genesis 3.8. I'm paraphrasing. But from Genesis 3.8, we see Adam and Eve sin. And their instinct is to hide. Their instinct is to run away from God and in shame over what they did and in fear over him because now they're at odds with him. They've broken and severed the relationship with him. They hide behind some trees as if that's actually working, right? It's kind of silly, but they do it anyway. So that story is important to remember because that is our story. That's all of humanity's story. Sin leads to separation and hiding from God. So at this point in the biblical storyline then in the book of Psalms, to hear someone say that you, God, are my hiding place. I mean, if if we are reading the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis all the way through, and we were at this point now in Psalm 32, and we didn't know how the Bible was going to end, This would probably be incredibly hopeful for us, but it also might feel like a contradiction of ideas related to how the Bible begins. We'd at least be left with the question, how can this be, right? What happened or is going to happen to allow for this type of reunion with God? And here's how this question, I think, is answered biblically. This tension is resolved. I wrote this out, so if you're on Facebook, you can read, read this. But if you're not, just, just listen to this. Here's where I think that the Bible resolves this tension with the theme of hiding, which is another way to, to say this is the whole Bible, the whole biblical story in a paragraph. All right, and here it is. The Bible begins with us hiding from God in our sin. The Psalms prophetically pick up on this idea, and sing about a time when we would hide in God and be reconciled to him. Then it ends not just with Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, which accomplishes this reconciliation, but with Jesus after his resurrection pursuing and finding the disciples who are hiding in a locked room afraid for their lives. Do you see the movement there? And how the Psalms plays like the the, the middle role in between the former problem and the ultimate solution. And in that sense, it's prophetic and hope-giving. The Bible begins with us hiding and it ends with Jesus finding us in love. What's in between? Jesus' bloody death in the place of sinners. And so... Psalm 32 points to this good news, not just that a time was coming when we'd no longer need to hide from God, but notice the language, that God himself would be our hiding place, that Jesus would find us in a state of spiritual cowering, that he would rescue us, show us his scars, embrace us, and that this is important, send his spirit to live in us so that we could hide from danger in him not in his teachings, as if he's teaching us how to fight our fears, ourself, but in him, himself, as if he alone is the solution to our problem, not our works. All right, The third theme is in verses three and four, which is the idea of David's bones wasting away. Let me read verses three and four again to remind you of what it said. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. All right. So on the one hand, as we already talked about, this psalm is about David Holding in his sin and not confessing it. Which again, like we said before, is a sign of self-righteousness. It's a sign of um, embracing a type of moralism that's void of God. It's believing that we can save ourselves or that we can cover it and digest it ourselves. But what happened? That led to his bones wasting away. It led to depression and maybe some physical symptoms as well in the same way that stress and anxiety can physically affect our bodies today, right? So it may, it may have caused him actual physical symptoms or that may have just been like a poetic way of talking about internal strife and spiritual strife when he wasn't confessing, uh, probably a bit of both. So that's the, on the one hand, that's what it's saying. On another level, however, these are the words of Jesus himself who, even though he knew no sin, he was perfect, he was a son of God, He takes on the darker parts of this psalm as the son of David so that we might be relieved of those darker parts. So here's what I mean by that. And to to use the language of the psalm, Jesus was, so fast forwarding to the New Testament, we look at the life of Christ, but especially his passion, which means his sufferings. Jesus was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was, quote, wasted away for us on the cross. Our sin was held in him there. The Lord's hand was heavy. God's hand was heavy on Jesus for us. So that also, also that we can say that Jesus died for our obstinance. He died for our hardness of heart. He died for our iniquity, which is to say our premeditated evil. Not just our subconscious sin that we do without even thinking, that we're born into by, by our very nature, but the things that we know we've done, that we've, we've counted the cost, we've premeditated the evil. Maybe even as Christians, we know it's wrong. We've heard the voice of God calling out to us in that moment, but we've suppressed his voice. Jesus even died for that. Isn't that amazing? Not just for some vague notion of sin, but for the worst of premeditated evil that we've all done. He's died for our pride. And and here's the key with the heavy hand idea. Jesus died to let God's heavy hand pass over us. There's a Passover idea to Jesus' death. I don't have time to go into today in full detail. But the idea here is that Jesus bore the heavy hand of God's wrath on the cross in our place so it would pass over us now in the present but also ultimately in the future when judgment occurs. The Psalms teach us elsewhere as well things like God saves us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Some of you that have read the Psalms maybe have, have heard that before maybe in a song. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And, and I think this means that Jesus's outstretched arms on the cross save us and the mighty but heavy hand of God and his wrath was pressed upon Jesus for those six hours when he was dying as a propitiatory sacrifice that means a wrath absorbing wrath deterring away from us sacrifice he is shunting the storm of God's wrath away and psalm 32 prophesies sings about this future reality because it's a relief to us when we know it happened. And also I think when it says that David, he talks about being surrounded by shouts of deliverance. That's something we sing too in, in some songs we sing. Uh, but it's a wonderful idea. David saying, you God have surrounded me with shouts of deliverance. And, and if you think about it, just picture that in your mind. Those aren't David's shouts, right? Those are others' shouts because he's being surrounded by the shouts that are altogether separate from him. They're someone else's because they're surrounding him. They're not in him. They're coming from him. And so what we say from this then is those shouts are Jesus' shouts of deliverance on the cross. When Jesus on the cross shouted, it's finished. It's done. I've paid it all. Or when he looks down at, at sinners he loves and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That that is a shout of deliverance. And, and that is, man, this is how it really preaches to us. Because all of what, what this is saying is every day, God is surrounding us with those types of shouts. Right now in your living room or or wherever you are watching this. God is surrounding you if you believe in the gospel, if you have turned to him and confessed your sin and believe that Jesus died for you. Your whole life, in your worst of times and your best of times, is described as, the reality of it is, this is our house, we are living in this reality. We are being surrounded by shouts of grace. Not shouts of stay away, like the shouts of Sinai in the Old Testament where the law was given but shouts of, I have paid it all. Shouts of, I have won. Come share in my victory. Shouts of, you are loved and forgiven. We need to be hearing these shouts over and against the shouts of other false religious ideas or the shouts of the world that contradict it. Is it done in Christ's hands alone or not? These are the questions we need to ask, right, every day. What shouts are we listening to? What does it say? Christ shouts love. He shouts grace. He shouts his victory on the cross over our sin. So then we are called to be relieved by that. Not to work for it, but to listen to what he has to say. Listen to his shouts. Learn from them and be absolved. Be reconciled. Be saved. Be re-identified by those shouts let me say it one more way here before we wrap up. Uh, Verse 4, when it says in verse 4, God's heavy hand was upon me, just to make sure this is clear, when it says God's heavy hand was upon me, that is not a normative Christian experience. That's not you. We don't live under the daily concern over whether or not God's hand will be heavy upon us in a punitive way. Kind of way. It's not about us. Psalm 32, in this way at least, is not our prayer. This was the prophetic prayer of one man, David, who lived 3,000 years ago, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago, and after him and through him who established a new testament with us, built on the works of his hands alone, so that we might be spared, forgiven, and blessed. All right, a few words then to wrap up on verses 8 to 11. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but verses 8 to 11, um, and you may have felt this uh, as well when, um, when you read it, they're interesting because they, they contain preaching unlike many other psalms. In other words, David kind of turns, there's a break there, right? David turns to the reader the congregation, the choir, the listener, his people, all of them together, the audience. And, and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So that's a difficult verse uh, to understand, but I think it helps when we read it in light of the rest of the psalm. And also if these words are the words of Jesus to us. So not just David to the first audience, but the, the words of the second David, the words of the son of David, Jesus Christ, to, to all of us. And again, in context with the rest of the psalm. So for clarity, he's not talking about understanding generally here and saying like, don't be like a horse, be a smart person. That's not how we should take this. Like it's a call to some sort of vague wisdom here. But instead, he's calling out to us as if um, he's saying, I want you to understand the whole psalm. Understand the theology in it. Understand where forgiveness and blessedness and relief come from. And again, it's dialed up, I think, when you see it as Jesus singing these words over us because they're songs and they're his songbook. Or about himself, maybe, as the way We should go, right? From verse 8, like when it says that I'll instruct you in the way you should go, Jesus is the way. Jesus is not a teacher saying the way is over there. Let me tell you how to walk that path well. He's saying I am the way. Just like the psalm is saying God is our hiding place. He's not telling us how to have a good hiding place or to fashion one ourselves religiously. He is the hiding place. So our works are completely out of the equation. It's the same here. Jesus is the way. And so I I think in the spirit of that, we can like reread Psalms 32, Psalm 32, 8 to 11. uh, Actually the whole Psalm really, but especially with uh, a bent towards the last few verses as though they were from him. And that's how I want to close and I'll close in prayer as well. But I want to read the last few verses as though Psalm 32 as a song was arranged. By Jesus. So, following on screen if you're on Facebook, but otherwise, just listen to this. The words of Christ, the words of the second David, encouraging us in understanding to know what the way of salvation is. All right, and here it is. Understand what this whole psalm has been saying that forgiveness brings blessing, not the works of your hands. Understand that you cannot cover your sins. Only I can. That the heavy hands of God on me meant my wasting away. My strength was dried up by the hot sun when I was being crucified. But it brought you spiritual relief, joyous singing, and gladness. See, my sons and daughters, you are sorrowful because you are wicked. But turn to me, and I will surround you with love forever." Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for singing salvation over us, for shouting shouts of deliverance over us. Uh, Father, it is quite clear in this psalm that you are the agent of salvation, not us. And oh, that is something that we just, it's almost impossible for us to understand. We need your help. God, help us to believe, to be glad in this idea, to hear you shouting love over us, to stop trying to digest our sin ourselves as if time will heal it or as if our good works will somehow compensate for it. But instead, help us to see that blessed is the one whose sin is covered by someone else, by Jesus. That's a blessed person. That's a blessed man. That's a blessed woman right there who understands that and believes that and has happiness and peace and resolution and hope above all hopes through that idea. Help us, God, as a church, to believe that this week uh, as if we've never heard it before. May it be that fresh and that beautiful and that transforming for our lives and our minds. In Christ we pray, amen.